Good to see everyone this morning. Um, last week we were uh, we began our focus on uh, chapter eight of the Gospel of John. Uh, spent most of the time yesterday, uh, last week, uh, focused on the first few verses, verses one through eleven, uh, which is the story of the uh, woman who's brought to Jesus who was caught in adultery. I just want to briefly. Uh, sum that up a little bit and then we'll, then we need to move on. I would like to try to get through chapter 8, but I don't, I don't know if I'm going to accomplish that this morning or not. We're going to give it a shot though. Uh, just to, to sum up, the lady who was brought to Jesus uh, and, and who had been caught in adultery, of course the situation was that uh, uh, the Pharisees and, and those involved were trying to entrap Jesus. They were trying to embarrass Him. They were trying to uh, take away his influence from the people by putting him in a dilemma to judge this woman. And of course we know what happened. Jesus uh, suggested to them that uh, the person who, who was among them that had, had not sinned cast the first stone. And then of course he stoops down. He uh, is uh, riding on the ground as those folks are having an opportunity there uh, to kind of think about that and apply that to themselves. Uh, there's a few comments last week about, well, what did Jesus write? Well, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote. And anything that we throw out there is really speculative on our part. And uh, uh, we do know this. Jesus lived a perfect life, so we know he didn't write anything that was uh, uh, wrong or sinful or anything like that. We do know that he probably wrote something that uh, had some impact. One thing that crossed my mind is this was probably a large crowd. So if he stoops down right here, if I stoop down right here and write on, on the floor, can Keith read what I'm writing? So, you know, the possibility that everybody could read everything that, that Jesus wrote is, is not, you know, out of the realm of possibility, but probably not likely. And, of course, we weren't there. We don't, you know, we don't have the recording of what he wrote, and so anything that we... Uh, might uh, come up with is just our opinion and our inspective. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. Uh, we just don't have confirmation of it. Um, uh, you got to believe that it did have some impact though. Uh, it did show uh, a certain mindset that Jesus had toward them and it did give them the opportunity to think about what he had challenged them with and that was that whoever was without sin should, should throw uh, the first stone. His answer was perfect in, in every way. And, and that seemed to happen, you know, every time. Uh, the Jews opposed him and they tried to do this very thing. They tried to entrap him. Uh, he, he, would in, he would turn their deceitful nature around on them and use it as a, as a teaching tool for them. And what they did in the process of bringing this woman before Jesus is they overlooked the part of the law that, that was applicable here in their haste to try to entrap Jesus. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses is giving them, uh, the children of Israel, instruction as to how they should go about stoning uh, if a sin like this is, is taking place. In Deuteronomy 17, 7, the hand of the witness shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. So the witness to the act of adultery 
were, of course, to be the first ones to throw a stone, then, then the others could participate after that. Um, and, and he's sort of adding, if, you know, to what Moses wrote there in that not only were they to be the first ones to cast a stone uh, who are a witness, but they're to be without sin themselves. Uh, so Jesus makes the statement from Deuteronomy, and then he stoops down and he, and he, and he writes on the ground. And he, As I, I suggested to you last week and this week, I think he's given them time. Time to think about that, you know, and do a little self-examination, a little internal view of themselves. Um, um, and if, if, they, if they give in to that, if they throw the first stone, what they will do then is acknowledge that they're hypocrites, but they themselves will be the ones that are breaking the Roman law, not Jesus, as they were trying to entrap him with. And if they don't throw a stone, then of course they're acknowledging, yes, we're sinners, uh, just like this woman that we brought here. So the choice is to be a hypocrite or be a sinner, and it, it was a complete reversal of the trap that they thought they had laid for Jesus and going to, to catch him in. And when they, when they heard Jesus' response, we read what the Scripture tells us happened. Uh, one by one, they begin to, to leave. No one was willing to do that. No one was willing to cast that first stone. And, and why is that? It's because they were convicted. Their hearts were convicted by themselves or toward themselves. They, they were humbled. And, and that was followed. As you, if you'll think about being humbled, you know, what usually follows that, that experience if, if you find yourself in that situation? Well, you kind of, at some point, you get over your hurt feelings and you sit down or you back off and you start kind of thinking about things. Um, and, and, and you start to kind of examine yourself. And, and I believe that's what exactly happened to these people. So one by one they left until every single one of them was gone. And, and, and of course what that means is, is that they decided that it was better to be acknowledged as a sinner rather than a hypocrite and break Roman law. And so we picture this scene. Here's this, this crowd. I think of it as a mob. Uh, they drag this woman before Jesus and cast her down on the ground there. And, and all, you know, not only Jesus, but all those that had gathered around him that he was teaching, uh, who were probably focused on what he was saying uh, and had some influence, uh, or Jesus had some influence on. And here this scene unfolds, and pretty soon they're all gone. And all that's left is Jesus and the woman. And so Jesus', Jesus is teaching concerning sin and the sinner and, and his own relation to sin set him apart from men as one unique in every respect. Uh, in, in his dialogue with the woman, Jesus just shows a, a completely different way of dealing with sinners. Uh, he offers forgiveness. Uh, as opposed to, say, condemnation and punishment. With the law, there, there, was, there was condemnation for any kind of infraction. And then that followed by uh, being punished. This other way that Jesus has is the, that you're offered forgiveness and restoration if you acknowledge that you've been wrong, that you've done wrong, that you've sinned. And in telling the woman that she should go and sin anymore, 
Jesus is showing this balance between grace and the acknowledgement of sin. It's not a free ride. That's not what we said. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't tell the woman, you can just go on your way uh, and, and go ahead and live your life whatever way you want to in the way you were living it before. Uh, no, that's not what he told her. He told her to go and to sin no more. So that's, that's the repentance part of it. Jesus is acknowledging that what she did was wrong. He's not, he's not making an excuse for her. He's not justifying anything that she did. He's, you know, what she did was wrong, and it was a sin. And, and, and he's just saying, I don't condemn you, even though I have the right to, begin to condemn you because of who I am. He's saying instead, I'm holding back that right and I'm offering you forgiveness. And if you accept, accept that forgiveness, then, then, then go and sin no more. Go, go live your life, but do it without sin. And so, so Jesus offered forgiveness with the condition that, that she repents. Jesus' attitude toward the sinner is, is very well illustrated here in the mercy that, that He shows toward this woman in adultery. He shows us mercy too. Here the Pharisees brought her to Jesus expecting there to be judgment. Uh, and, and they absolutely had no concern for her well-being. They weren't at all interested in helping that woman uh, correct herself and right herself. They were only looking for an occasion to accuse Jesus and to entrap Jesus. And in the end, what they were done is they were taught a great lesson. They may not have acknowledged it or not, but they were taught taught a a great lesson. And in the end, mercy is shown to the woman, not death. Not death by stoning. Do you want to say something, Paul? Yeah, I agreed with that. Uh, um, I, I think their whole intent was to entrap Jesus. They didn't really care about sin. You know, I don't think they were judging her. Otherwise, they would have brought the man. As we said, we were talking about last week. One of the first things we said last week was, Who's missing here? The other man, you know, the other part of the, the couple that committed adultery. So that's hypocritical right out of the gate, right there. Then. And so I think, I think so far as this situation here, the intent was they were going to, they, they only, their only concern was to try to uh, uh, 
diminished the influence that Jesus was having on the people. But now back to your point. Uh, I don't know that I would say that I, in my experience that I see that kind of mentality, mob sort of, mob's a bad word maybe, but crowd type mentality in the church per se. Uh, but a lot of sins are a lot more visible than other sins. Some of them you mentioned there. Uh, like, I can't look at you and know that you're not praying enough. You know, or, you know, there's things that I can't judge about you from a, or anyone else in terms of the severity of the sin, but there are sins that are, that are very public, if you will, and, and um, obvious. And so uh, those, in my experience as serving as an elder, you must deal with them. If, if, if the congregation, as a majority of the congregation or as a whole, know that those sins have, have transpired, they, they must be dealt with. But I know in my experiences of doing that, being a part of a group of elders who had to do that, and needed to do that. Uh, the last thing we were trying to do hurt anybody. We want to, you know, we're helping. And so, um, I don't, I don't know that I agree that there, you know, we see that in the church. In my experience, I haven't seen that kind of mentality in the church before. I don't know if anybody else has. But you know, please speak up if you have. Um, that's kind of, you know, my thinking. But we, it, it's it's worth thinking about, and and then you know, Rogers in here. I, um, I don't know if anybody else has served as an elder before or not in here. Moral, moral. I didn't know that. So you know what I'm talking about, right? You understand what I'm saying? You know, if anything, you go to the extreme on the other side, trying to keep it from you know getting into this kind of situation that we're talking about this week. All right, let's move along. Uh, and again, we'll do the best we can here. I know time time. I don't. I know I won't get through today, so we'll we'll uh, <laughs> we'll continue on next week. Um, Let's move on into chapter 8 and pick up with verse 12. And we'll be looking at the section of Scripture about uh, verse 12 through 20. My preference is just to, rather than reading it as a whole to begin with, rather to read it, each little section of Scripture as we're we're going along here as time permits. Uh, Verse 12 reads, And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Have the light of life. So, so who is the them that he's speaking to? The them that he's speaking to are the Pharisees. And, and once again, here Jesus is, he's, he's providing them an opportunity to understand and to believe in him. Light represents truth. Darkness, on the other hand, 
is a, is a symbol of error and ignorance. He is the light of the world. He's the light of the world because he came to this world to show us the way of the Father. To show us the way. Jesus is saying here, I am the entire light. Not, not just a little beam of light. Not just a little flicker of light. I'm the entire light. And, and where I am, there can be no darkness. He, he dissipates the darkness. He, he chases it away. He makes it go away. And in, in this same verse, he equates light with life. In, in other words, if a person has light, that same person has life. Light, light is used here um, to be synonymous with salvation. And, and not, only, not only be just synonymous with salvation, but, but rather it's the source. It's where it comes from. It's the source. The light he's speaking of here is, is truth. Truth and understanding that one has when they know God. That's the truth. That's the light that he's speaking of. If you know the truth, then you not only have normal human life, but you also have spiritual life. Spiritual life. And if you have spiritual life, you have the truth. And, and if you have the truth and you have the knowledge that Jesus is, in fact, indeed, the Son of God. And, and where there is no light, there is no salvation. 1 John 5.31 talks about how those who are possessed with the light walk in the light as He is the light. He, he's... He is what Jesus is doing here in this verse to these Pharisees is he's declaring his divinity. Uh, he, he's declaring his divinity and his association with God. And, and, and actually, this is quite a bold declaration by Jesus. And of course, the Jews recognized that and they couldn't let it pass. So, you know, in, in John 5:31, like we were reading, 1 John 5:31, the Lord had said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And so, what did the Pharisees do? They challenged him back, and they said, uh, in, in verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself? Your witness is not true. That's, that's their response to him. They, they tried to dismiss what he's saying, and they really don't make any comment to what he's saying. They're, they're in essence saying, you're just talking about yourself, so what? And, and, and they make no comment on what he had said. They don't acknowledge that he's just told them, he's made a de declaration to them of his divinity. They're, what, what they're really trying to do is find an angle on him to try to discredit him rather than listening to the content of what he said and understanding what he said. And, 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 you know, when you think about people who debate other people, whether it just be a common, everyday sort of argument you might get in with somebody, or a more formal type debate, uh, this is a human tendency of folks. You tend to try 
to discredit whoever you're debating. If you can take away their credit, their credibility, then you have an angle. You have a leverage point on them. And so people will do that sometimes regardless of the validity of that argument uh, of what they're trying to say, regardless of the validity of the person who's saying whatever they're saying. They try to discredit that person. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. His answer was that, that his testimony regarding himself was not based on human consciousness, but rather on him being aware that the Father sent him and that, that ultimately he was going to return to the Father. Let's read the next few verses, 14 through 16. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. So, he possesses an eternal nature, and he could not only tell them where he came from, he could tell them where he was going. And he recognized from the viewpoint that from the viewpoint of the law of Moses that his witness of him, himself alone would not be accepted. And, and establishing his claims would require the witness of more than just himself. However, his witness would be true because it would be truth. He, he would speak what he knew. And in rea reality, the, the Jews were incompetent, really, to judge him uh, and, and to judge what Jesus said. They didn't know the things of God nor what he spoke. His witness was true because he came from God and he knew what he spoke. Verses 17 and 18, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So he's answering them. He's giving them the answer from, from the perspective of divinity, from his perspective as of his divine nature, that's where the answer is coming from. He's telling them that even though he makes a statement about himself, that statement is nevertheless true because of several reasons. First, he has complete knowledge about his entire past and his entire future, and they don't. Why? Because he's the Son of God. Second, his assessment of himself is, is not just opinion. It's not just based on his opinion alone, but rather it's the opinion of himself and of the Father. And then third, the two agree on a thing that, you know, that, that two people or two entities agree on a thing and is what the law requires in order to establish validity. So Jesus says, since I and the Father agree upon what I say, our testimony is true. If it was a man that was saying that, then, then that would be boasting. But since it's the Son of God who's saying this, then yes, it has to be true. 
They judged him by the flesh. Therefore, their judgment could not, couldn't be true uh, since it was, it was not spiritual in nature. So Jesus came to the world not to condemn but to save, John 3.17. But he had or did on occasion exercise judgment on the wicked. They judged after the flesh. He did not. His judgment was not approved by him, but also by the Father. He, he doesn't judge that, um, them as, as a man. Uh, he judges them as God who has complete knowledge of it. And, and so if he wants to judge, he can. He's the Son of God. Verses 17 and 18, he turned his attention back to, to witnessing and showed that according to the law of Moses, he had the right to do this. He had the right to testify of himself by his own divine origin and by the word of his Father spoken through the prophets and, and John the Baptist and, and by the Father himself at the baptism of, of the Lord. This is my Son in whom I'm well, well pleased. And so they mocked Jesus and, and asked him where his Father was. Yeah. Making a mockery of it, implying since he wasn't there, he couldn't bear witness. And, and, and so they used another tactic to try to, you know, sidestep what he just said. Don't acknowledge what he just said. They're still trying to entrap him. That's their only intent here. They didn't, they didn't answer what he said. They turned their attention to asking who his father was. And so here we, are, here we go off down another rabbit hole. Um, as, as we sometimes say in our day and time. His answer was that they knew neither him nor his father. They think they're, they're talking, and, and, and they think he's talking about his earthly father uh, when, he, when he was actually talking about his heavenly father. And, and so, honestly, they truly don't get what Jesus is saying. They don't understand. Verse 19, Then they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And so they really demonstrate that they don't know who He is. They don't know who His, his Father is. Verse, verse 20 reads, uh, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on Him, for his hour had not yet come. So this is kind of an editorial type verse that, that John has inserted here uh, in between the dialogue. Um, they don't seize him at this time because God was not going to permit it. It wasn't his time. Verse 21, Then Jesus said of them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection and, and, and they will not be able to understand what, what has taken place because they don't believe him. They don't believe in him or believe him. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? And so that really demonstrates their lack of understanding right there. Uh, they, they think because... He is talking about his death that he is going to cause his own death. 
um, and, and almost finding Jesus' statement amusing. Uh, you know, suicide was one of the gravest sins in their mind. So, so really, their response here is just showing a lot of contempt for Jesus. Um, his response ignores that malicious, maliciousness and, and he, he, he graciously holds out the possibility of salvation for those who opposed him. Uh, verses 23 through 24, And he said to them, For you are beneath, I'm sorry, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, or if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus refers to the world of, of ungodly men. He wasn't in it, or, or He was in it, but he, he was not from it. He was, he was separate from them. And since He's not of this world, He didn't enter in the same way as the other person. He did it in a supernatural way. In verse, verse 24, he affirms that, that it is of necessity that you believe in Him, that He is from above, and that He's not of this world. He's giving them the key. He's giving them the key. He, he was the revelation of God, and therefore He was holy. His call to men was a way to holiness. He's giving them the key. Am I? Mm-hmm. This is the same I am that he told Moses who's on Simeon. The I am sent you. And then the rest of the chapter now, he's going to prove he is the same I am that spoke to Moses. Mm-hmm. It's the same Hebrew word. It's also used here, the same Greek word, the great I am. The great I am. So, only those who believed on him could be saved, and only through Him could man find access to the Father. He's saying that, that, that you will not die in your sins because you broke the law. You will die in your sins because you don't believe in Me. As Mike said, it's the great I Am. They die in their sins because only through faith can they have their sins forgiven. Verses 25 through 27. Then they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand what he spoke to them that he spoke to them of the Father. If you've listened to the um, recordings of, of Brother Masalongo, who, who we based this study off of uh, on uh, BibleTalk.tv, I don't know that I agree with what Brother Masalongo said here. Uh, he kind of he kind of took the position that they were saying, um, 
like in conversation, you know, you may somebody may say something a little provocative to you, and then you say, "Who are you?" You know, kind of like that. Not really asking them who you are, but making a kind of a jest back toward them. I'm not sure that I I, I necessarily agree with what he said. I think they did that with contempt. They asked in contempt, "Who art thou?" Uh, they didn't really need to ask that. Jesus had told them repeatedly who he was. He was the Son of the Heavenly Father, the living water, the light of the world, the bread of life, the way to heaven, or the way of heaven. So anyway, there's more to say here about these few verses here we're, we're focused on. It's probably a good place to stop, I guess. Pick up with uh, verse 25 next week. Thank you for your comments and your attention this morning, and uh, we'll... we'll Pause there, and um, again, we'll pick up next week. They gave Jesus one of the greatest insults.